0: He jokes, but I have not preached in three weeks, <laughs> uh-huh. and I've got like seven chapters of text. So here we go, buckle up. Uh, it's like riding a bike. Imagine this for a moment with me. It's dark, the sun has set. That chill that comes with kind of the the moisture and the darkness has started to set in, and he's all alone. Everyone he loves has left, and he's here next to this river. And he knows it's going to be a sleepless night because he's keeping watch, because there's someone coming for him, and that person is angry. And as he settles down, thinking that he's somewhat covered, out of the darkness and the wonder of what's actually hidden in that darkness, a figure emerges. And this figure has locked eyes on him. And as he approaches, he starts to get down, getting low, into a combat stance. And he knows this is it. I have to fight. And they start fighting. The gloves are off. They're going at it for hours. They're fighting. And if you've ever been in a fight, you know that just a fight of two minutes is just exhausting but they're going at it back and forth, fighting and fighting, and neither of them are besting the other. And so suddenly, they can start to see a little as the sky goes from black to gray and the sun is starting to rise and it just breaks the horizon. And the opponent who came for him looks at him and says, that's enough and strikes him a devastating blow that cripples him. And as he's crippled and can no longer fight, he does the only thing he can think of, and he just grabs onto his opponent and won't let go. And the opponent is looking at him like, what are you doing? You're done, you're defeated. With that devastating blow, and there's this blinding pain coursing through his body as he knows this is not good. I'm done for. But then the opponent strikes an even heavier blow. He looks down at me and says, what is your name? And it hurts so much deeper than that other wound could ever have begun to. Just what is your name? The hit that hurt worse than any other. And so I'll ask you the question, who are you? Who are you? Like really, who are you? Today, we're continuing in this summer series where we're jumping, we're flying through the book of Genesis, looking at different generations as we focus in, and what that shows us about who God is, who we are, what this goodness of this gospel is. And so we started in the garden with creation. And there's a God who before any of this that we see as brokenness came about, there's a God who is holy, and he is good, and he created everything good. But then we come to the fall. The man rebels against God, And we decide, no, I'll be like God. We're convinced by the serpent's deception. This lie that says you can be like God, and we decide now we still live like this that I'll be God. I'll decide what is right and what is wrong. I'll eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil instead of the tree of life. And so we've been separated from life, and yet God comes in and says, you realize the curse that's upon you. I told you you would die the day you ate of it. You feel this biological clock is ticking. Death is coming for you, the ultimate enemy. You've been separated from life. But there's this promise of the gospel, this seed of the offspring of the woman would come and he would crush the head of the serpent. He would reverse all of this and bring us back to life, to God himself. And so we are longing for that character. We're looking for that character as we continue through the story of scripture, who is going to be the seed, this promised seed. And it narrows in, it comes out again because we see in these stories things like the flood that the global population has blown up and yet God regrets making man because he sees this widespread corruption, and yet he has favor on this man, Noah, who stands upright. He walks with God. He is righteous. And so Noah and his family is preserved in an ark, and they come out, and again, like, we don't make it a generation before. It's back to corruption. It's back to evil. God knows what's in man's heart, and he gives them the sign of grace. And so the population explodes again. And as it comes out, we narrow back in on this figure, Abram, who becomes Abraham. And Abram or Abraham receives this promise that now through your family, this is where the seed that was promised all the way back in Genesis 3.15 is gonna come. So here through Abraham, Abraham does some crazy things. He has his one and only son that's truly his, Isaac. And he goes up, Pastor Scott two weeks ago, he's gonna sacrifice him. But then God provides a ram who's stuck in a thicket. And God provides just like in the gospel, the lamb of God is slain on our behalf. This is Jesus and then we get to last week, where Isaac, this next generation, Isaac, is introduced to his wife. and Isaac and Rebecca become married in this beautiful picture of the gospel, and how God is the ultimate lover of his people. We are the bride of Christ, and we'll be united with him once and for all, but it was purchased on the cross, on the cross, that we are now His betrothed to him. And now we come to this next generation as Isaac begins to have children. And so turn with me in your copy of scripture, Genesis chapter 25. Genesis chapter 25, picking up with who Isaac is and moving into the next generation. Genesis chapter 25, starting in verse 21. Isaac has been married, and yet they have no children at this point. Um, Yet again, you see this repeated theme of these women being infertile, that they're, they're barren womb, they're not able to produce life, and so they have dead wombs. This is important for us to recognize. So starting in verse 21, Genesis 25, verse 21, Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was childless. The Lord was receptive to his prayer and his wife Rebecca conceived, but the children inside her struggled with each other and she said, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb. Two peoples will come from you and be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. When her time came to give birth, there were indeed twins in her womb. The first one came out red-looking, covered with hair like a fur coat, and they named him Esau. After this, his brother came out, grasping Esau's heel with his hand. So he was named Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when they were born. And so... Miraculously, because of Isaac's prayer to God on behalf of his barren wife, please God, help her. We're supposed to be the family. Remember the promised seed, is coming through us and yet we cannot have offspring. And God hears and he responds. And now miraculously, here is life from death. This beautiful picture of Christ who comes from a virgin's womb, that there is a dead womb. There is not life in that womb. And yet somehow now by God's grace, by his power, life comes through this womb. Life comes from this. This is a prophetic promise that's given to an infertile woman. And there's also, with this prophetic promise, a disordered blessing. That in the ancient Near East, in this context, the firstborn is to receive the inheritance. The firstborn is to rise to prominence, to be in power over the rest of the family, to continue the patriarchy. The firstborn is to hive the highest seat. And yet, in this promise from God prophetically telling this mother, Actually, the secondborn will be like the firstborn. The firstborn will actually serve the secondborn. He will be under the firstborn. And this, this disorder is confusing. What is this? This promised blessing to the secondborn. And yet that secondborn is going to continually fight for this blessing that is already his by the providential promise of God. And so buckle up because we're gonna give you a crash course of the life of the secondborn. Um, this is Jacob, and it says his, his name actually means he grasped the heel. He comes out grasping the heel of his brother Esau, and so Esau comes out as the firstborn. Jacob comes out holding onto the heel of his brother, like, no, 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 you can't get ahead of me. And so like that, like, okay, one of you is named Red Esau because you're covered in furry red hair. Like, that's a little odd, but okay. Lots of testosterone in that kid, okay? And now we've got Jacob who's like the deceiver, the schemer. He's the one who's trying to be the usurper. All of these words are connoted in the Hebrew here for Jacob, that Jacob would contend or wrestle. And this plays out what a self-fulfilling prophecy, that this is the totality of his life. It's, he's constantly trying to take the place of others. He's never secure in who he is. He's grasping the heel, always trying to get one over. And yet, he's the one who was prophetically given the promise of God. He's given the blessing. And yet now he thinks he's got to fight his whole life to get that blessing that's already his. What a tragedy. He grasps the heel overreacher, supplanter, deceptive. Jacob's life is marked by constant comparison and contest with others. His performance, deception, deep insecurity, and this insatiable discontentment that's constantly robbing him of peace, not just within himself, but also with others. Can you relate? This is Jacob, who is just constantly comparing himself to others, constantly in contest with others. Performance, deception, deep insecurity, this insatiable discontentment is always robbing him of peace. Can you relate? I can. Oh, What a tragic character. And so as we go through his life, he grows up, and Jacob becomes basically a housekeeper, He loves to stay inside. He's a quiet guy. Just stay inside. Mom loves him. She's so fond of him. Whereas his brother Esau grows up, you know, ramped up on testosterone. He's this furry red-haired guy, and he loves to be outdoors. He becomes a huntsman, and he's amazing at it. He's very successful in it. Guess who loves him? Dad. Dad loves the guy who's outside hunting with him, doing all the rough and tumble things. And then there's this boy who's a homebody who Mom loves. And they're constantly at odds. Esau comes home one day. He is starving. It says he's, he, he's convinced he's going to die. He is just starving. And he comes to Jacob, who's this great housekeeper, and he's like, Jacob, make me some of the red stuff that I love. I'm dying of hunger. Please. And Jacob says, sure, it's going to cost you your birthright. And Esau's like, well, I'm going to die, so what good is that to me anyways? And Jacob takes the birthright of Esau. Now, what kind of brother takes advantage of a starving sibling? This guy, Jacob. And then as Isaac, the father, is dying, he's blind at this point, and Jacob disguises himself as his hairy brother, gets goat skin with all the fur, puts it on his hands and his neck so that he can get the blessing from his blind father. But in this moment, as Jacob is deceiving his father, he's there wearing Esau's clothes with the goat fur on his hands and his neck so that he'll smell like and feel like his brother. And Isaac is going to bless him. He's looking like, are you? But he asks this question, who are you? Who are you? And Jacob says, I'm Esau, your firstborn. You liar, you coward. Jacob flees because Esau is going to kill him. And so Jacob leaves. He's alone now. He's gone off to his uncle Laban and Haran. And so now Jacob is with his uncle Laban and he sees this girl. He's like, "Whoa." smoking hot. I want her. This is weird. I know they're all family. It's weird. Let's just keep going with it though. So he's like, what do I have to do to get her? Cause he didn't really have a lot to offer as payment for her. And Laban, his uncle's like, well, work for me for seven years and you can have her. It's like, deal, deal. I'll take it. So he works for seven years. Like she's got to be some kind of hot. And you're like, I'm going to work for seven years with my eyes on her. And then the wedding week comes. They're celebrating, and a little too much to drink, a little too dark in the tent, don't know, but he ends up sleeping with the sister. He wakes up, oh, surprise, it's not the one I wanted. He's like, you've tricked me, Uncle Laban. And Uncle Laban, having deceived the deceiver, says, well, what did you think would happen? There's something to this whole firstborn idea. You have, you have to marry the older one before you can get the younger one. Work for seven more years, and you can have her. okay. Like, these girls must be something. But he goes on. But now the deceiver has been deceived and it's about this birthright idea. But they go on. He starts to have children with them. He's accruing wealth and is actually very, very blessed. Like, God's favor is on this guy who I cannot stand in such a way that he's amassing wealth. He's amassing children. He's growing in prominence and power and all this stuff. And Uncle Laban at one point realizes, this is not good. He's blessing me because he is blessed. And now I'm viewing him kind of as a threat. So his his countenance towards him changes. His uncle's attitude shifts. And now Jacob knows it's time to get out of here. And so instead of being a man of character and courage and standing up to his uncle and saying, things are not going well, I'm going to leave, he decides instead to flee in the cover of darkness. And so deception again marks his path forward as he leaves. But now Uncle Laban is apparently a lot faster and he catches up. What are you doing, nephew? Instead of fighting, they now establish a treaty. And they have these markers to separate them. But again, Jacob knows, I've got to go home. It's time to go home and finally face my brother Esau. He knows he left with Esau wanting to kill him. He was given the blessing. He was given the birthright. Esau wants to kill his younger brother. Knowing that, he sends messengers ahead, trying to sweet-talk Esau. Go tell him like all this nice stuff about like, I'm your servant and everything's gonna be great and all this stuff. The messengers go, they come back and they're like, hey, this isn't good. Esau is actually coming and he's got 400 men with him. This is not good. Jacob is terrified. He divides his camp into two because his idea is if one camp is, is attacked, the other one can escape while the other's attacked. So we're gonna sacrifice half of our camp All of his possessions, all of his people, his family, half of them over here, half of them over here. If one or the other gets attacked, I'm going with the other one and we're going to get out of here while the other one dies. Like, okay, that sounds pretty awful. And then he sends this massive gift of animals ahead to try to appease his angry brother coming with 400 men. And now, turn to Genesis chapter 32 as we pick up the story. A few pages over, Genesis chapter 32 Starting again in verse 21. So the gift was sent on ahead of him while he remained in the camp that night. During the night, Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two slave women, and his 11 sons and crossed the ford of Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream along with all his possessions. Jacob is now alone as darkness falls. He has sent Every other person and part of his family and his wealth to go be between him and his brother who is coming for him. And now, alone on this side of the stream, on this side of the river Jabbok, Jacob waits in fear and wonder of what would happen as he has sent everything he has to go be a buffer between him and his angry brother. What a coward. What a deceptive. Slime ball. And I can't stand him. Like in all of the stories of scripture, this is the one who bothers me the most. And do you know why? Because I see myself in him. When I see Jacob, it's like looking into a mirror. Like, what is this man who is so self-centered that he would send his whole family to the other side of the river? Just protect me from him. Alone. He waits in the darkness, afraid, and this figure shows up and takes this fighting stance. Here they are at the Jabbok River. And do you see the play on words here? Jabbok and Jacob. It's this inversion that both would mean to wrestle, to contend. And now here at this river that means to wrestle, here comes a fighter. And this fighter comes up in a fighting stance ready to wrestle with him at the Wrestle River. And if you don't know anything about the history of warfare, it's a bit odd, but it has continued on in this way that it becomes less and less personal, but more and more lethal. Because at this point, we're fighting largely with drones and screens and buttons, where from miles away, you just obliterate life. And you didn't have to look at them. You just saw a screen. And so there's this huge degree of separation, but you go back a little and it's warships, it's planes, it's less and less personal, and yet there's still this targeting system And then you go back a little more and it's rifles with scopes and triggers. There's still this separation. You go back a little more, there's bows and strings and arrows and slings and rocks and sore arms. And then there's spears and swords where now you're face to face. And then there's, hey, weapons down, you and me, just our fists, let's go. This is the most personal form of combat that you get. The guy coming for Jacob wants this to be deeply personal. He could hide looking at the little campfire that he's got there by the river, staying in the shadows and just throw a spear, shoot the bow and arrow, whatever he wants, but no, he walks across and he wants to fight face to face. It's time for this to get real and personal. And there comes a point in every fight where one person is going to realize this was not a good idea. Um, My son is in karate. And they do this drill sometimes where they they have their belt around their waist, they take a second belt, and they actually tuck it into their belt behind them. And the idea is you have to learn to keep your opponent in front of you. You don't want your opponent to get behind you because you're vulnerable. And so they play belt tag. And so you're just trying to grab the belt of your opponent. And so you're dancing around trying to get it. And so my son, the last time they played this game, my son was actually doing wonderfully well at this. He was actually getting the, getting the belt on his opponents one after another. He was doing great. And so some of the class starts to cheer for like, Leland, Leland. And then one of them has this idea that there's one of the staff guys, this is a young guy who's a black belt. He helps the sensei. And he's like, let him get him. Let him get him. And so now my son Leland, who's nine years old, is against this black belt young man who is leading part of the class and they're gonna go at it and you know like, this, this isn't good. But Leland, out of fluke chance, just happens to grab the guy's belt. And the guy's like, what in the hole? Like all this stuff. And it's like, that's my boy! Yeah! Come on, Leland! And then the whole class is like, they're all erupting in cheers. and the sensei's like, all right, I tell you what, here's the deal. All of you, Versus this black belt. But if he gets your belt, you do 100 squats. And all this class just watched little old Leland grab that black belt's belt. And they're like, yeah, we can do it. And Leland, of course, is like, yeah, I'm all in. I'm like, yeah, that's my boy. you can get him. And then we realized this is not a good idea. As that black belt danced from one opponent to the next and just calmly grabbed their belt, dancing his way around the room, them never touching his belt. You wanna know who the first belt he took was? Leland's, <laughs> just to prove a point. There comes a point in combat where you realize this is not a good idea. Jacob and this man have been wrestling. He had his moment because getting the upper hand through underhanded means is only ever gonna work temporarily. When you get the upper hand through underhanded means, it's temporary at best. He has his moment. Look at verse 24. Jacob was left alone and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. When the man saw that he could not defeat him, he struck Jacob's hip socket as they wrestled and dislocated his hip. Then he said to Jacob, let me go, for it is daybreak. But Jacob said, I will not let go unless you bless me. What is your name? The man asked. Jacob, he replied. Your name will no longer be Jacob, he said. It will be Israel, because you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he answered, why do you ask my name? And he blessed him there. Jacob then named the place Peniel, for I have seen God face to face, he said, yet my life has been spared. The sun shone on him as he passed by Peniel, limping because of his hip. That is why still today the Israelites don't eat the thigh muscle that is at the hip socket, because he stroked Jacob's hip socket at the thigh muscle. And acetabellum, and I'm probably saying that terribly wrong, that's the hip socket. This type of dislocation is very rare. Most often, they happen because of a severe impact with the force of something like a car crash or falling from a terribly high height. This guy, fighting all night long, has come to the point where he says, that's enough. Strikes Jacob in the groin area so hard that it dislocates his hip. If someone could fight all night long... And then hit you with that kind of force, you know they could have ended this much earlier. But he decides at this point, that's enough. Breaks or dislocates his hip. <laughs> but then the worst hit comes. As he won't let go, just, I'm not letting go until you bless me. And the guy looks down at Jacob, who's just clinging to him, and he says, What is your name? And again, worse than a dislocated hip. It cuts to the heart. What is your name, Jacob? Deceiver? Usurper? One who wrestles? Yeah. Always trying to get what is not yours. Trying to be someone that you are not. In other words, who are you? Can you be honest about who you are? And Jacob responds for the first time in the story with honesty. Jacob. Jacob is my name. There are three things that I want you to see from this text today. So if you would like to write them down, I know this is unusual, but I actually have them on the screen for each one. The first one is this. You cannot earn a blessing God has already promised you in grace. You cannot earn a blessing God has already promised you in grace. Jacob spent much of his life fighting for what was already guaranteed to be his by the sovereign hand of God. Before he was born, God prophetically told his mother, He will be the blessed one. And yet he comes out fighting, constantly trying to be the one who would get the blessing that was already his. God had said it. It was as good as done. It was his. And yet he feels the need to constantly fight for it, to earn his way into it through these just terrible means. He thought that he could earn this blessing, he thought that he could somehow conjure up or he could acquire this blessing that was already his in grace. And this is the gospel. This is what is called election. That God has chosen us for salvation. It is nothing that we could do to earn the favor of God. In grace, he says, no, I choose you. I love you. And I'm coming for you. And then he sends his own son, Jesus Christ, who took on human flesh and then lived a sinless life, the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world. He goes to the cross. He's silent like a lamb led to the shears. He does not open his mouth. He's nailed to a cross. He dies the death that you and I deserve, and then he's raised again victorious over death and sin. He has conquered it all, and he says, Now believe in me. Would you turn from your sin? Trust in him. He chose you. He came here to die for you. He says, You're mine. I love you so much that I will die for you. So turn from your sin, confess him to be Lord, confess him to be a Savior who is mighty to save. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. And the promise of Scripture is you will be saved. You can know that this was foretold. Your name was in a book before the foundation of the world. He said, Kevin Franklin, who will live around the year 2023, my name is in a book. I did not get to write my name in that book. And nothing I do is going to earn my way into that book. God wrote it a long time ago. Like he told this mother, there's two nations inside of you. This younger one is actually gonna serve the older one. Or actually, he's, the older one is actually gonna serve the younger one. As in grace, he will be the one who is blessed. He cannot earn it. And yet now he lives a life thinking that in some way he's got to acquire it for himself. Because you cannot earn a blessing that God has already promised you in grace. It's the gospel that we were, as Reggie read earlier, opening this service. We are chosen before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in love before him. Chosen. And so if the gospel is true, that God chose us and we cannot earn his favor, we cannot earn this grace that he has given to us at cost to his own self, the life of the son of God, then who is your Esau? Who are you fighting with? Who are you wrestling with? Who are you comparing yourself to, trying to measure up in some way? And no, God chose you. And grace means you have nothing to prove. You have nothing to prove. So in this enslavement of comparison, maybe this means that you need to delete an app on your phone or in the very least regulate it. Now can I give you homework as one of your pastors? If you have an app on your phone, social media, that leads you to constantly comparing yourself to others, and that happens very subtly, you're often not thinking like, oh, their life is just so much better than ours. It's it's way more subtle than that. It often expresses itself in how you feel. And so if you have that app, you also have the ability to do a quick Google search for what is called a feelings wheel or an emotion wheel. Right now, I will not be offended. Pull that up. And I want you this week, every time you open whatever that app is that you know you love to run to, I want you to be honest and go from that app to that picture of the emotions wheel or that feelings wheel and be honest about what do you actually feel right now. You may find that you will change your habit because this constant comparison is lethal for our soul. We must be satisfied, content with what God has for us. And that doesn't mean that we're stuck. But it means we can be joyful in where God has us. We should not live like Jacob, always trying to earn the favor of God, the blessing of God that's already been given to us. Get rid of the comparison game. And the next one. Uh, The freedom to live in the gift of God's new name for you begins with being honest about who you are. The freedom to live in the gift of God's new name for you begins with being honest about who you are. The wrestler asked Jacob what his name was, and it's a telling moment. Jacob's father, remember, had asked him the same question. Who are you? And Jacob answered with deception, pretending to be someone else. But in this moment, here in this wrestling match, face-to-face with God, Jacob owns the answer honestly. I'm Jacob. Schemer. Deceiver. Supplanter. The one who grasped the heel. He owns his past he's honest about who he is. He owns his identity. He did not hide who he was anymore. He took ownership of it. And maybe that's where you are today. You need to own who you truly are. Uh, Peniel, which is what he names this place because he has seen God face to face, It means face of God. And it has the Hebrew word penim. And that Hebrew word penim actually just means face. Jacob not only had come face to face with God, but also face to face with who he really was in order for God to make him who he wanted him to be. We must be honest about who we are. Alone, Jacob has sent all of his accumulated wealth, all of his growing family. Alone, he is left with just himself. And we know that he has never been happy with just himself to this point. And yet here he is, alone. And God shows up wrestles with him and blesses him, gives him a new name, a new identity that he can walk in for the rest of his life. And as he does this, I have to ask, have we so cluttered our lives with so many distractions that we can't actually hear God and what he wants to say to us? Alone, on this side of the stream, he could finally see and hear God. So maybe we should be in the practice of simplifying our life and getting rid of a lot of things so that we can truly be alone with God and hear the blessing that he has for us. Now listen, be with him. And now, last one, our wrestling continues Godward now instead of inward, continually being joyfully bested. Our wrestling continues Godward now instead of inward, continually being joyfully bested. That in his wrestling, Jacob refused to let go until he was blessed. And so we have to ask, where are you looking for blessing? What are you running after thinking this is going to be the blessing in my life? Or who are you trusting to be the source of blessing in your life? Where are you looking for blessing? Jacob realized that as he's defeated, this is the source of blessing. So I'm just going to cling to you. There's nowhere else I want to go. I just want your blessing. Bless me. So where are you wrestling? Our wrestling now is not inward. It's not internal. It's not, as our culture says, like, search yourself. Find who you are deep within. That is nonsense. It's nonsense. It will lead you astray. As Jeremiah said, the heart is evil. It's evil. It's terrible evil. No. We wrestle with God to decide who we are. Listen to him. Look to God. Are you possibly wrestling with the wrong thing? Like, whatever it is that's consuming so much of your effort and energy right now, What if it was God? What if it was a wrestle with God that was paramount in your life? And that begs the question, what if God needs to seriously hurt you before you can receive such a blessing? Is that okay? What if God needs to seriously hurt you in order for you to receive this blessing? As Jacob did. This blessing meant that he would walk with a lump for the rest of his life. What if we were people who walked with a lump for the rest of our life? but did that with a smile, joyfully bested by God because his victory was my good. That I wrestle now with God because I'm a slave to righteousness, no longer a slave to sin. The power of God is in me to overcome this sin. One day he'll deliver me from the presence of sin, but even now the power of sin has no hold on me when I choose to fight. So we walk with a limp. With a smile on our face, joyfully bested by God, walking in humble confidence that my identity is in Christ. He has saved me. He will finish the work that he began. He's bested me, and I'm so glad to submit to him. So humble yourself under the mighty hand of God that at the right time, he might exalt you. That we walk with a limp and a smile on our face. No swagger, no pimp walk. Jacob walked with humility, hurt, but so glad to have been hurt. Are you glad to have been hurt? Jacob's wrestling with others became a wrestling with God, a wrestling where God would win and give him this new name. The name was Israel. It's a Hebrew word that sounds like wrestling with God. He struggled with God. He got a new name. It's a name that he would keep, and it would become the name of the entire people of God, Israel. A nation, a theocracy, a monarchy. An entire people with the name Israel. He struggles with God. That our struggle is no longer inward. It's no longer outward. It is Godward. We wrestle with God for His glory. This is why Jesus said to one of the churches in Revelation 2 He said, Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I'll give some of the hidden manna. I'll also give him a white stone, and on the stone, a new name is inscribed that no one knows except the one who receives it Conquer. You're meant to fight. Did you quit fighting? Well, stand up and fight. We wrestle with God. There's this idea of many scholars point out that the name Israel means he struggles with God, but they'll also point out it also can mean God struggles with them. I mean that you fight with God, and God fights for you. And that has been the story of God's people all along. This constant just struggle, and yet God saying, knowing grace, I chose you and I love you. You couldn't earn this. And so I'll bless you and I will fight for you. I'll make you my own. Israel, one who struggles with God, a name to walk in. So I know it's a lot, but it comes down to this. Don't look around you or inside you to determine who you are. Look to God. Look to God to know who you are. So skeptic, seeker, stumbling or doubting, saying, This is hard to believe. I want to ask, will you believe it? Will you believe this good news that there's a God who loves you like that? There's a God that we wrestle with and a God who says in that wrestling, you're mine, I win. And broken, we look up and we say, you're right, but the blessing is mine. And he looks back at us and he says, absolutely. And I'm so glad to give it to you. So will you live in that blessing? And follower of Jesus, will you share this good news? it's truly good news let's pray Heavenly Father I thank you for this church what it means to me I thank you that it was bought and brought into creation by your blood Jesus so let it be all for your glory God as we continue to wrestle like Jacob would you help us to be honest about who we are And to see you and your glory and your grace, the fact that you chose us. And to forbid us from ever thinking that we could perform in such a way to earn your favor. But to feast on you, to drink deeply and joyfully, knowing that you are our salvation. And then we'll live lives of gratitude, walking in the good works that you prepared for us to walk in. And let it all be for your glory. Help us to continue to wrestle to put this sin we struggle with to death by your power. I thank you that you're gonna finish this. I pray this in the name of Jesus, amen.